A very warm welcome to Series 5 of Industry Minds, sponsored by us, Tax for Actors. We take the stress out of self-employment. Stay tuned for an exclusive offer only for Industry Minds listeners. But for now, enjoy the show. podcast which discusses the importance of talking about mental health within the creative arts. My name is Kathy Reid. And I'm Scarlett Maltzman. And today we are thrilled to be joined by theatre director and artistic director of the Leicester Curve, Nikolai Foster. Hello, it's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me on today. Thank you for coming on. How are you today? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. It's, um, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, some days you sort of feel quite optimistic and sort of feel very positive moving forwards and then other days are less um sunny and you you know you 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 feel depressed and you feel very anxious and I think um yeah it's it's challenging times for all of us in so many different sort of ways so um generally very positive and feeling good but yeah with the caveat that you know there's that sort of um dark place just sort of sitting very much on all of our shoulders at the moment isn't it Absolutely, absolutely. To make things a little bit nicer for the start of the podcast, we always start with a word association game. Brilliant. Just the first thing that comes into your mind. And so the first one is sunshine. Clouds. (laughs) Uh, Lester. Brilliance. Musicals. Joy. Kindness. Theatre. Sunday roast. Yummy. Coffee. Oh, coffee. Um, warm, rich. Oh, yeah. Grease lightning. Oh, grease lightning. Goodness, just exhilaration. Amazing. Thank you so much. (laughs) Sorry, I wasn't very imaginative with my words, was I? No, yes, you were. It's fantastic. It's very difficult being put on the spot. Whenever we do it with each other, the word association, we freak out. So (laughs) (laughs) It's weird how the words just completely go from your mind, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So, Nicola, as we said, we are absolutely thrilled to have you on the podcast. Um, We always start at the beginning. So can you tell us about growing up and your journey into the arts? Oh, blimey, that's um, a complicated um, sort of um, thing to know where to start. So um, I was born um, in Denmark and we came over to the UK when I was three and we sort of um, moved around a lot when I was young and it was quite challenging and we sort of lived in and around sort of West Yorkshire, so Keithley, Skipton, that sort of area, the nearest sort of big towns and cities were sort of Bradford and Leeds, Um, very sort of normal working class rural upbringing, went to a comprehensive school, was very, very lucky, I realise, in retrospect. Um, You know, it it was back in the day when those comprehensive schools had a really rich, dynamic, diverse curriculum. And although there was a national curriculum and there was a sort of um, compulsion to teach subjects, there was real freedom um, within that curriculum and teachers were able to respond to young people and teach and 
focused them in ways that they believed were best for those young people rather than just trying to funnel them through sort of mass testing and, um, you know, results-based stuff. Um, and at that school, um, we had an amazing English teacher, Miss Neat, who um, really didn't, I don't think she really paid any regard to the curriculum. She just sort of was really interested in theatre and so she would take us on school trips and we would go and see the RSC doing Coriolanus in a sports hall in Newcastle. And we'd, you know, I remember going to see Anthony Cher doing um, Cyrano de Bergerac at Darlington Civic Theatre. We'd go over to West Yorkshire Playhouse, as it was called then, and see anything and everything and see Barry Rutter's Northern Broadsides doing Shakespeare in Cattle Marts in Skipton. And all simultaneously, we'd be learning about the Old Vic and the Royal Court Theatre from 1956 and all of those great writers like Sheila Delaney and Arnold Wesker and Harold Pinter. And that was it. I was hooked. And um, that was where my sort of um, love affair and passion for theatre really grew. And I never really thought at the time that there was anything unusual about this um, sort of theatrical education. And nor did I think you could go into a career or that you could be, you know, in the theatre. And it was sort of when I got to my A-levels, that was when the education system more and more became geared towards passing tests and getting those exam grades for potentially university. And where up until that point, it had felt really free and you could ask questions and if a teacher sort of saw you had an interest in something, then that was sort of the journey you went on as a class. It then all became about shutting down and going, well, you don't need to know that because that won't be on the exam paper or you don't need that to pass a test. Um, and I found that very challenging. And from having been a sort of very good student, I was very badly bullied. So it meant that I just sort of kept my head down and you know wanted to be invisible. I thought this doesn't make any sense anymore. And basically I bolted and walked out halfway through my A-levels, which was quite a radical thing, I think, to do, certainly from my background and my perspective, and went off to Leeds and found a college where you could do something called a theatre studies course. And I was really interested in the theatre and it was there that the world suddenly opened up because... There was a whole group of people, cosmopolitan people, young people who were really committed to theatre, who were going off to places called drama schools and were going to um, either be actors or directors or lighting designers. And suddenly I thought, wow, maybe you could go to a drama school and learn about acting because like so many young people, that was what I was sort of interested in or saw as theatre, it was actors. Um, and so from there, started auditioning for drama schools, got into drama centre, went to drama centre as an actor. And then it was halfway through that training where, you know, I was sort of inadvertently directing projects within the college. And that, that was where the sort of love affair and the sort of idea of what a director is was, was, was sort of born, really. Love That's affair amazing. sounds wrong. It was when I realised you could be a director, really. That's fantastic. And, and since then, I mean, you've directed all across the UK. 
um, the likes of the, the Sheffield Crucible, the Royal Court, the National Theatre Studio, um, the West Yorkshire Leeds Playhouse, to name a few. What led you to the curve? Well, what led me to the curve? I think um, I think the curve sort of found me. I thought I think um, I'd I'd sort of worked as a freelance director for about must be about twenty no about fifteen sixteen years before I arrived at Curve, and I had always wanted to um, be an artistic director. I loved the idea of working as part of a team and um, being part of a building and as an organisation. Because after I graduated from Drama Centre, I went to Sheffield Crucible on the Regional Theatre Young Director Scheme and trained there for three years. And I loved that sense of being part of a community and working within a community and serving a community. And it was only really really when I became a freelance director that I realised that, gosh, it's you, you, you make very intense relationships as a freelancer, but then they're over and you move on to the next job. And although there's something really exhilarating about that, nothing beats being part of an organisation. So I'd gone up for a few um, artistic director roles and, you know, I wasn't an artistic director. I hadn't been to Oxford. I'm not a posh, you know, person who belongs to the sort of theatre establishment and I just wasn't getting the jobs um and so I gave up on the idea of being an artistic director and then the job at Curver came up and I thought well I'm not going to apply for that because you know these are big tasks you know it's a couple of weeks working on the application and you know it's a big old thing going for um one of these jobs and I thought you know I'm just not right for it and actually, my mum said, you've got to go for that theatre. That looks like the theatre for you. And also, Curve, you know, rather brilliantly said, why haven't you applied? We think you should apply. We think you've got really, um, you, you would be able to contribute to this theatre and this job application process, so please apply. And I thought, well, there's, there's good omens there. So I ended up applying um, and obviously was very um, amazed and surprised and shocked to get the job, quite frankly, having, you know, as I say, given up on it um, and decided it wasn't for me, um, you know, the, the idea of being an artistic director. Do you think there's a bit of a stigma um, in terms of unless you go to somewhere like Oxford or whatever, you're, you can be an artistic director? Do you think that's kind of changed over the years or do you think that's very much still a bit of a stigma? I think it's changed a lot over the last few years and I think it will continue to change. And I think the class barrier certainly and the stigma and the idea mm. of what an artistic director is, is changing and will continue naturally and brilliantly to change and evolve. But certainly seven or eight years ago when I was sort of trying to throw my hat into the ring, I remember going to many of those interviews and feeling that I do not belong I do not have a valid contribution to make and that I don't fit in here. And, and often that was my own chip on my shoulder. That wasn't necessarily the vibe or the atmosphere that I was being presented with going into those um, situations. That was very much my own um, sort of chip on my own shoulder. But, but likewise, there were spaces you went into where you didn't feel welcome. And, you know, when you saw the folk who got the jobs, as brilliant as they are, they did fit into a sort of um, tried and tested um, sort of idea of what an artistic director or even what a director might be. 
you know, mm. Curb, I think, was extraordinary, is extraordinary. The people who come to our theatre are sort of um, people who aren't afraid to take risks. They don't even recognise risk. And at the time, there was an amazing chair, Sir Philip Tasker, and a wonderful chief executive, Fiona Allen. And again, they didn't see it as risk, you know, giving the gig to somebody who'd never been an artistic director before and certainly never, you know, helped lead an organisation of this scale. They just saw, hopefully, talent and a sense of ambition and good ideas. And they thought, yes, we'd like to work with that person. And that we, you know, those are the people who I think more and more, um, and hopefully Chris and I could represent that sort of brand of um, sort of arts leader who are excited by just talent. And, you know, we don't see risk. We don't see um, experience. We just see the person. Yeah, it's amazing. amazing. Yeah, I absolutely love that. And we'll get on to um, chatting more about your role as artistic director um, in a bit. Uh, Let's move on to mental health. Uh, What has your experience with mental health been like? This can be personally or it can be a reflection on the arts. Wow, that's a great question. I think it's only in recent years I've really started to think about my own mental health and really consider mental health as a sort of um, issue both for myself but also a really important factor in all of us coming together and making work and you know within our communities and the sort of groups we work with I think you know I entered the theatre at a time when you were very lucky to you know be an assistant director or be a director and you were my sort of makeup and mental health was very much coming from a background where you were just lucky to to be working quite frankly and so you didn't consider you know if you were worried about things if you were anxious about things if you had concerns you certainly would not raise them you would flatten them down bottle them down push them to the back because frankly you didn't want anything to get in the way or for people to think of you in a negative way and I suppose if you were in my head, I suppose, if you, because I'm a very emotional person, if you were perceived to be emotional or um, fragile or, you know, if you weren't strong, then I think that might have been looked on in a negative way and you maybe wouldn't have been given a job or offered an opportunity. And so I think um, for a lot of the time, I didn't really think about mental health because it was just something you bottled down and you didn't think about and you certainly didn't sort of talk about which is bonkers really if you think about it because the whole act of going into a rehearsal room or any creative space is about being vulnerable and about being open and I suppose intuitively therefore maybe issues any of us have felt or experienced or we've we've been able to um, articulate them and come to terms with them and understand them through our work and I think sometimes that, that's the great thing about theatre, isn't it? You can go into a rehearsal room and maybe by working on a play or working through a piece of music or a phrase of choreography, personally, privately, you're able to exercise and work through some of the private issues we're feeling. And I suppose that's a really good thing, but that shouldn't be the only way we're working through our mental health issues. We should be talking about them and we should be in an environment where we can speak candidly, 
and openly if we choose to do so. And so, so does that sort of make sense? What I'm, I think for a long time I was, I realised in retrospect, as we're all doing, we're working through mental health issues just by being in the rehearsal room and talking about things in a way which is not personal. It's about sort of addressing things, but in a non-personal um, way. And I think what's really great about Industry Minds and the way we're sort of thinking about things over the last couple of years or so is that we're going, yes, we can do plays and the, the actual act of just being creative helps you subconsciously work through an issue or something which may be um, burdening you. But actually, frankly, that's not good enough. And also that isn't really the act of putting on a show, the act of creating a play is in order to communicate a story for an audience. And so we shouldn't be necessarily working through our mental health issues through our work. There should be a space within our workplaces, wherever that is, to talk about our mental health issues and to um, to collaboratively and constructively work through them. And I think I'm sort of rambling on a little bit, but answering your question specifically, I think like I think so many of us experience profound trauma in our childhood and our upbringing and it isn't identified as trauma or child abuse and I think many people if you are a young South Asian person you will experience racism most likely during your upbringing hopefully less and less so nowadays but certainly from the 90s if you're a kid growing up in the 80s racism would be part of your formative years and that's a form of child abuse and then I think as you move into adulthood we need to you that that young person needs to be able to deal with and comprehend and come to terms with that abuse and I know as a gay person I experienced years and years and years of bullying of child abuse where you're told there is something wrong with you you are an outsider you are fundamentally wrong because of your sexuality and I think recognizing that as a form of child abuse and then thinking well it's no wonder in the early part of my career or in the early part of my sort of um years sort of as an adult I was traumatized and I was apologizing for myself and I was not confident and I wasn't putting myself out there because you realize again in, in retrospect in hindsight that it takes many years to come to terms with child abuse and having like so many of us grown up in a situation where you are told you are abnormal there is something wrong with you and that all keys in I think to mental health and in a very long-winded and roundabout way I hope mm. answers your question yeah completely yeah. and completely agree with everything that you've said I think Mary our counsellor speaks quite a lot at the seminars how you know everything even self-doubt it all comes back to it could even be one tiny experience from your your childhood that triggered something and um, so yeah absolutely completely and um, Kind of keeping on the, the topic of mental health, you are known throughout the industry for just your absolute kindness and how well you treat others. 
And this includes sending actors personal letters if they don't get cast in the show you're directing, which is just absolutely incredible. Um, And even the way you you hold an audition room, um, you're so kind and welcoming. Um, The industry recognised this as you were awarded the first ever uh, creative award at the IMAs in September. Um, You're just absolutely amazing. And it is! Um, but you are, you, you absolutely do so much for so many people and we've certainly seen so much about the letters and stuff over Twitter and how much it makes a difference to people who have auditioned for you. Um, why did you take this approach in the process? Um, I, don't, I don't honestly think it's ever been an approach. I think, it, it, you know, like, yeah, I, I just think basically that is how you know, everybody should conduct themselves. I mean, when an actor comes into an audition room, it, it's very, very stressful. Um, and Kay Magson, who's the casting director, we work a lot with at Curve, we talk about this often, that, you know, the, the actor, the artist, should be afforded dignity coming into the space throughout the process. They should leave with a feeling that they've done great work and that they are empowered and they leave with dignity And then the final part of that process, if they're not successful in getting the gig, is they should be told. Um, This is basic um, humility. How can you expect somebody to come into a rehearsal room and be open and energised and excited to be there if the very beginning of that process hasn't been one of recognising their talent and treating them with basic human respect? I think it's... um, you know, there is no excuse in our business just because, you know, we've got to see loads of people and auditions, you know, it's, you know, there's lots of people to get through. Well, see less people. If you're not able to see them, you know, in a way which um, recognises their contribution to the process and recognises their talent and recognises that they may have learned to speech or worked hard on a piece of musical choreography before they've even arrived in that space or that they've had to take time off work in order to be there, if you're not able to do that with dignity and respect, well, just see less people or restructure your way of doing it because it's just basic, um, it, it's basic humanity. And for me, there, there just is no excuse. And being polite, being friendly, being collaborative, being communicative, that is the foundation of theatre, isn't it? That is the foundation of creating something together, whether it's a large musical or a community response piece or whatever it is. And if and if you can't bring that to the audition space, well, then you shouldn't be there. I mean, your artists, uh, your actors are your artists. They're your collaborators, aren't they? I mean, um, so it, it really is wonderful that you've sort of um, recognised it. And I'm so, um, I was so blown away, as you know, and so honoured and flattered to get the Creative Award. But for me, it really... It's just common sense. It's common decency. It's treating people with respect. And, you know, that I can't really say any more than that. It's just how it has to be and how it should be and how it must be. Yeah, it's amazing. You're so amazing, honestly. I'm actually getting a little bit emotional just listening to what you just said because it's so refreshing and just it is just that thing about respect and dignity and and treating people how you would like to be treated and appreciating the work that they've put in really. Yeah and sometimes in auditions I mean like when we're doing a big musical and for example like on Greece because that's just the sort of last thing we were casting um you know there were there were 
for example, we knew that we were having a big dance call in the morning and then there would be some people we have to bring back in the afternoon and to sing and do some more work with. So there would be some people we'd need to let go from that dance call. But, and again, that's not a nice thing to have to do to sort of say, well, we've just spent an hour and a half with these people. They've worked really, really hard. And now there are a certain number of people we're going to, you know, let go. But again, it's about doing it with dignity. And I think as a director, you know, saying, I'm going to now read out the list of people we'd like to stay. And I'd like to say really massive thank you to those of you who are leaving and, you know, and, and explaining a little bit about why that group are, are being let go of. I think, again, it's it's ruthless and it's an, a really unpleasant thing when you've literally got a group of people in a room and you're saying to half of them, thank you so much, you may go now and you've been unsuccessful. But again, it's just doing it with dignity and humility and, you know, not trying to, you know, be anything other than it is and recognising that it's not the best part of a process, but this is the process we're at today and this is what we're doing. And again, it's it's just being dignified. Yeah. Where do you think, you know, from everything that you've just said and how, you know, this this is just, you know, basic, you know, humanity um, and how to treat other people, where do you think it's kind of got lost if you look at the work that you do, for example, and then perhaps, you know, an open call that is put out as a private call, for example, actors are waiting outside for hours, queuing to get in. They're then given five minutes in the audition room and then cut, you know, in masses. Where do you think, you know, the confusion has happened, you know, between the two opposite sides of the spectrum? I think it's to do with tradition and I think it's about a perception of how an audition or how things may have been done in the past. So, you know, the sort of iconic, the iconography of the sort of, you know, the Broadway baby sort of, you know, going from audition to audition and there's a there's a table in the darkness and, you know, there's somebody shouts next and then they, so there's this sort of romantic um, sort of idea of what an audition is. And I think there may be groups or, um, uh, you know, uh, 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 practitioners within our industry who haven't sort of moved beyond that idea. And, I haven't sort of grasped that times have moved on and there is a different way of doing things. There is another way of doing things. And it, you know, in the same way that theatre has evolved, theatre practice, scenography, choreography, um, you know, immersive theatre, all of these strands have developed. And I think there are, um, unfortunately, folk who are sort of stuck in an old school way of doing things, which is everybody sitting behind a desk and loads of people waiting outside in chaos and people sort of coming in like some sort of cattle call. And I think that's, it, it's about sort of just taking a breath and going, oh, actually, there is a different way of doing things and actually looking at submissions from agents, carefully selecting who we want to meet, then giving each of those people we'd like to meet a slot and a really clear audition brief and then spending a bit of time with them, you know, asking them a bit about themselves when they come into a space, calming them down, learning a bit about them. Because, you know, often I've auditioned people who I talk to them and I think, oh my goodness, you're absolutely an incredible artist. And then they really, you know, don't do very well on the singing or the acting side of it. But you think, well, actually, let's get them back for a recall because talking to them and learning about them I go I think I'd love to work with you and I'd I'd be interested to learn more about you and then they come back for a recall and they're 
amazing. And had you just dismissed them or just seen their song and not learned about them, they wouldn't be in the show. So I think it's about perhaps people reflecting on their practice and, you know, it doesn't all need to be chaos. It doesn't need to be done the way it's been done before. You can do things in a really measured and it and it all goes back to, again to what people think theatre is. I think a lot of people think theatre is chaos. It's everybody's sort of you know this this sort of you know chaos. That's where great art comes from. And it's like no, it doesn't. Great art comes from hard work, preparation, a calm, considered idea of the direction we're all moving in, and that all keys into mental health. If you can hide a lot of bad directing, a lot of bad acting, a lot of bad everything behind chaos, and you know people are het up and seeing lots of energy and lots of chaos and you can hide behind that because it's very difficult to harness chaos um that sort of makes sense yeah completely completely absolutely I'm so inspired by what you're saying there and I think that doing that kind of thing is really especially for young actors who are just coming into the industry um is really important so that they feel supported um and they don't feel like they're left on a limb Hi everyone, Owen Woodgate here from Tax for Actors. As promised, we have a very exclusive offer for Industry Minds listeners. For those of you who don't know who we are, we are an accountancy firm specialising in, yep, actors and others within the creative industries. So for Industry Minds listeners, we're offering 20% off our standard fees for self-assessment. Drop me an email, owen at taxforactors.com contact us via our website taxfractors.com or via twitter or via instagram when getting in contact make sure to mention industry minds and you'll benefit from 20 percent of our price for this year enjoy the rest of the show going on from that you have done a lot of work at drama schools um, in the past few years including some incredible productions such as kiss the spider woman um which i saw just before my arts ed edition absolutely oh, wow. oh. It was stunning. And even uh, the lights of last year's Christmas musical, uh, West Side Story, it featured a lot of younger actors. Why is working with drama schools and younger actors so important? Well, because it sort of goes back to what what I was sort of saying at the beginning about this English teacher who sort of inspired me and took our class on such an amazing journey through, um, well, British, the history of British theatre, basically. I think, you know, young young people are the future aren't they you guys are the the future the contribution you're making now the contribution the young actors coming out of drama schools going into the um you know into the business they are the future they will shape they will be the leaders of the of the future so i think working with those people hopefully inspiring them and hopefully um giving a good example and sharing good practice that feels like a really important thing but also selfishly young imaginations whether it's at a place like art said or national youth music theater or our curve young company young people don't have all that baggage all that worry all of that damage that our industry can do they're so free they're so open they're so excited just to collaborate and you know I think as directors as musical directors as choreographers we feel so at ease working with them and we do some of our best work because we're not censoring ourselves with the baggage that a business or an industry or a sort of um, a protocol can can pull on a process and so it's it's a two-way thing you feel hopefully like you're hopefully giving a little bit back 
but also that you are um, you you get so much from it just because they're so open and so um, inspiring to be around, and you you can see them growing so freely and so quickly, and so it's it's a really a two way thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. I mean, Kiss of the Spider Woman was literally one of the most incredible things I've ever seen. I saw it the week before my Arts Edition and it freaked me out because I was like, what do, what do they do at this place? And it was, yeah, even though it's seven years ago, I still remember it very well. So if anyone's I'm listening, proud of it. yeah, go to Artside and get the DVD out when they open again. Oh, do they have <laughs> a DVD? DVD yeah, they, re- they record everything. So we've. Oh, I'd love to see an archive of it. Yeah, they've got everything on archives. So um, yeah, you should go back. Oh, that's Chris. Well, I'm going to argue your point, Kathy, and say that West Side Story was the best thing that Touche. I've ever seen. <laughs> oh, <thank laughs> So as an artistic director, does it give you an opportunity to change people's perception on theatre by seeing different work? Yeah, I think it, I think it absolutely does. Um, and I think anybody who maybe feels theatre's not for them or is curious about what a building like Curve does and what goes on in there, um, you, you can see like we did a production of a play called Memoirs of an Asian Football Casual a few years ago and it was set in Leicester and it was very reflective of um, some of our communities and seeing though you could see many times during previews you know folk who'd never been inside a theatre before coming in seeing the play watching it as if they were watching a footy match and absolutely being wrapped and engaged by the actors and the words and the story and literally seeing their minds sort of going wow this is this is absolutely for us and I'll be coming back I think that's a wonderful gift that all of us who work in our you know, regional theatre share that you really can um, promote and offer work, which is, I mean, all work should be accessible and um, um, open to all. And I think that's a thrilling thing about working in a place like Curve where we're not snobs, we're so excited you know whether it's a big musical or you know whether it's a new piece of dance by Akram Khan or a Kasha Dedra or a very commercial what's classed as a commercial play or a big comedy it's about getting people in and showing them and um well not even showing them letting them see that theatre is you know there's very few people who come into a theatre who don't have a good time you know mm-hmm. a place like Curve you come and you're like wow this is amazing I you know, I didn't realise it was here or it was for me. So um, it's an amazing gift we're all able to contribute to. Yeah, I think it's amazing as well the, um, the, the children's theatre aspect that you have going on at The Curve, because I, um, I think there's still quite a lot of stigma around children's <laughs> theatre, especially for actors. And I know you had Giraffes Can't Dance on this year um, and productions like that. And I think it really does change, you know, from the actor's perception if they're say if they're hearing oh you know children's pr- productions are always naff do you know what I mean I think as well getting the audience in and inspiring them from such a young age it, it's fantastic yeah and it's so important again it goes back to who are the gatekeepers and what they consider to be theatre and high art and you know for us there's no distinction I mean a production of Giraffes Can't Dance running next to West Side Story. They're both equally valid and as important. And and as you say, you know, children, you know, whether it's a pantomime or the kids show at Curve at Christmas, 
that might be their first interaction with theatre. And so in many ways, Giraffes Can't Dance is in some ways more important than West Side Story in terms of making sure the quality and the imagination and the love and the um, respect for the form is, is complete and absolute. Because if they have a bad experience, if it's shabby, if it's not being cared for, if it's not being curated and created with love, well, that if that's their first experience, they might never come back. So it's yeah. so important that theatre for young people is, and also, you know, many shows that are sort of created with young imaginations in mind, the parents, the adults love going because, you know, there's a great freedom and anarchy. And I know when I've directed shows for younger people, I feel so free as a director because you can really let your imagination go. And sometimes you do your best work and, you know, you see the adults enjoying it as much as the kids. And again, you know, it's hopefully after all of this, we'll stop being so caught up in what we think is a musical audience or a play or a audience or a, you know, a, a new work audience or a, audience for young people they're just audiences and if the work's good and if it's imaginative then it should be for all of us exactly exactly absolutely I think that's so important that when when we do go back into things we use it as a kind of catalyst to to make change um and to provide opportunity and to and to see different work and have more more people represented and people see themselves up on stage. Um, just for those who don't know, as an artistic director, what is your role um, at the Leicester Curve? Oh, blimey. I don't <laughs> I think, um, I think back in the day, the artistic director would sort of have programmed the theatre and have decided, you know, you know, which directors and designers and sort of folk you've got coming in to your organisation. I think nowadays, I mean, I don't really know what an artistic director does. And I think any artistic director around the country working in our sort of brilliantly, dynamically different organisations would have a different answer. I mean, God, what is my job? I work with Chris Stafford, who's the chief executive. We work on drawing together the programme. So whether it's the work we're creating ourselves or with the programme manager, the work that's touring in and the visiting work so that we can curate and complement a sort of really dynamic and diverse programme of work. It's helping set out the vision in terms of what are the new projects we're working on, what are the new commissions we're doing, what are the community groups we're working with, how are we communicating with our community, how is the youth theatre feeding into the work we're making and how are they learning from um, the work that we're creating and how are they sort of sitting at the heart of that. I suppose it's in the most general sense, setting out a vision, an idea, an ethos for the organisation and then working with all of our teams, community groups to how that actually sort of comes into fruition. It's commissioning work, it's going out there and talking to Hollywood film studios and hustling for titles. It's directing shows. It's it's sort of, it's become brilliantly everything and anything. Um, there are no barriers to what the job is. It's sort of rolling your sleeves up, getting stuck in and sort of having an instinct, an idea what's best for the organisation and then hopefully rallying the troops to move towards that sort of goal, I guess. Yeah, sounds like a great job. 
Um, it is a great job. It's a real honour and it's a very, um, and you're just a caretaker, really. I mean, you're just sort of, um, you know, I'm I'm the sort of, with Chris, a caretaker for now. And in a few years, somebody else will come along and, you know, they'll help look after the building and, you know, sort of take it forward, really. It's a very, um, it's a very, you know, one is very grateful and humble to certainly curve. It's such an amazing place. And the audiences and the people who work there are so spectacularly special that it's um, you, you feel the loss even more when you can't sort of see them every day and be in the building. Yeah, And yes. um, do you have any advice for any aspiring directors or artistic directors out there? Um, my advice would be to um, not sort of get caught up or swept up in other people's um vision or idea of what you should be that you know that there is only one you and you genuinely can only find your own way and your tastes and your ideas and your original thoughts around a piece of work or a play are what make you unique and special as a director or as, uh, as an artistic director or indeed as an actor and you can only really be true to yourself. So I think seeing work, reading plays, immersing yourself in literature and, you know, art, whether it's, you know, music or pop music or galleries or whatever it is. So you help get a sense of what your tastes are. But, you know, it, it can only really come from you. And that's um, the hardest thing to learn, isn't it? To be true to yourself, to know what your values are you won't do certain things you won't be put in certain positions you won't um you know there are certain working practices which your ethos or your integrity says are wrong and you don't want to be part of so i think it's 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 really staying you know strong and true to who you are really Absolutely. Um, so you have worked all over the country, as we said before, as well as abroad. Can you tell us something that you have learned um, as a director from creating work for those different audiences? Well, probably, um, without being flippant, that it, it sort of doesn't matter where you are in the world or whether you're in a sort of, you know, studio out the back of the Oldham Coliseum or a theatre in the West End the work is either sort of good or it's not it either works or it doesn't and audiences respond to work which is dynamic and challenges them and entertains them and thrills them and maybe makes them think about the work in a slightly uh, the world in a slightly different way and I think there are far more things that sort of, you know, unify us and bring us together than, you know, push us apart or, you know, the, the, we're very similar wherever we are in the world. And I think, you know, audiences respond to good work and, you know, they, they want to be thrilled, they want to be transported. And I think that's what I've learned, that you just, we always just want to try and strive to make work that's thrilling and exciting and popular and, um, really brings people together and that there are, as I say, very few things that divide us and far more things that bring us together and unify us. And theatre is the great 
unifying force of, of the world, really. Yeah, it is. You're so inspiring. I'm just yeah. sitting here, like, I'm forgetting that I'm doing oh. an interview. <laughs> oh, God, thank you. I'm just trying to, you have such great questions, so I'm trying to answer them. brilliant. Bit, uh, We've only got a couple more for you. Um, but um, our second to last question is, how do you personally approach a rehearsal process? Um, is it quite similar for you each time, or does it entirely depend on the piece you're working on? And how do you make your company, you know, going back to the mental health aspect, how do you you help them, you know, bring out the best in themselves and the work during that process? Um, I think often the, the sort of structure of rehearsals is quite similar project to project, just because um, I've grown up in a system where you've either got three or four weeks rehearsals. So there isn't a lot of time to sort of mess around or waste time. So from before rehearsals start, obviously in the audition room, you've talked a little bit about ideas and sort of vision and direction of travel with a piece. And before um, rehearsals start, I'll sort of send out a research pack so that the actors and the stage managers can start to think about the world of the play and the politics and the sort of landscape of which the sort of characters and the story exist within. And I think that's really helpful because that gets them thinking about the work in an imaginative way. It doesn't, it stops it sort of being like, practical and sort of um pouring over the, the sort of specifics and thinking more imaginatively which I think is the best way to approach a process and then when we start obviously you know we do the model box and I'll sort of witter on about maybe what the play might we might think it might be about and what it might say to the world today and the sort of direction of travel but also very much in that I will embed and hopefully talk about the actors as creative allies and creatives you know there is an idea and the playwright's written the words and you know maybe there's music and choreography you're going to learn but you are expected to be creative contributors to this project you are here not to be told where to stand or you know how to navigate your way through a scene you are there you have been invited to this process because you are a creative imaginative force and that is what we require of you over the next few weeks so we require you to be vulnerable to be open to be creative to challenge to ask questions to be provocative and to say if you think things aren't right or you're on you you know you're not comfortable with something and then from that we very quickly sort of go into the script and start talking about it and asking questions and I always say there are no stupid questions you know if something's unclear you know even if you think oh my god that's a stupid question I shouldn't ask that ask that question because as I say there are no stupid questions and there is no right or wrong answer and that immediately frees up all of that tension and anxiety we have starting a process it opens people up it relaxes them we we approach that table work and that um, chat about the play and the research and the world of the play in hopefully quite a light and um, fun way. So even though often, you know, plays, West Side Story, for example, deals with very dark, very complex and challenging, upsetting subject matter, our conversation, you know, although it will get intense at times, you will always want to try and keep it light and 
allow people to throw jokes in and it sort of be jovial. Um, and then that, you know, continues throughout the process. And if you, you know, if ever at times you see somebody seems out of sorts or upset, you might ask them, are you all right? You know, take them to one side. And I feel like if you set up a room where it's open and people are free to talk and ask questions, you know, then if somebody is upset or somebody is having problems or challenges which needs to be addressed, an actor will feel free to say, just so you know, so-and-so is struggling a bit. I think they'd really appreciate you having a chat with them. And so it's just about how a room's set up. It's like the audition room right at the beginning. If it's open, relaxed and calm, then, you know, if people are having mental health issues or are struggling with a scene, they'll feel able to be open and to be able to talk about that. But also, I believe without question that the best work comes from people being relaxed and open and creative and feeling they can contribute. And an actor's instinctive response to a scene or a piece of text is often their best response. And, you know, being free as a child and playing, that openness lends itself to great work. And so being alive and open and free in the rehearsal process it, it creates the best work. It creates work which is imaginative and free. And, and most importantly, the actors feel ownership over it and they feel empowered. And after all, you're the guys who are going to have to do this eight times a week for, for <laughs> you know, sometimes years on end. Like you've got to feel like you're creating the work and making the choices and that you have ownership over it. If it's some idiot has told you to do this and do that and you don't know why you're, doing this or doing that well how are you going to feel ownership or a sense of pride when you're then presenting it to you know a thousand people and also they're not going to believe you if it's not come from within you yeah completely 100 percent. i think the um the industry is very very lucky to have you it sounds like an amazing way that you run your auditions and your rehearsal rooms and oh. yeah Thank you, so, thank you so much for for all you've said on that. It's really been very inspiring. Um, so, just thank on you. onto our final question, uh, which we ask everyone: Could you walk into a room today and say, "I'm having a bad mental health day"? Well, I could because I'm in a position of authority and power, I suppose. Although I hope Curve is, you know, a very open and a very democratic place. Chris and I essentially are the leaders of the organisation. And I feel that often as a leader, things are much easier for you because you can walk into a meeting or a rehearsal room and in effect, you will set the agenda. So if you go in with a bad mood, which I certainly never would, that will then set the tone. So I would feel very empowered and indeed have gone into a room and said, you know, I'm struggling a bit today or this is going on. I just, you know, I'm not making excuses, but please just be aware that there are these challenges today. So yes, certainly I could. And I would hope that people working at Curve could across the board, whether that's actors or, you know, tech teams could. But I'm aware that maybe not everybody else would feel that way. And I think we've got a long way to go before our industry you know, feels that sort of democracy and feels empowered to do that. Because I think that 
that should be the case in any business that you could walk into your employer to your colleagues and say today is not a good day for me and these are the reasons why yeah yeah completely Nicola, thank you so much. We've just got one more game for you before we oh, let yeah. you go. I like the game. Always end with a game. Always a game. <laughs> this is finish the sentence. Oh, God. You'll be fine. <laughs> so, a book I'd recommend to everyone is? Oh, well, um, I would recommend at the moment Julie Andrews' autobiography. I've just Ooh. finished reading it. And like many great artists, you know, she's gone through some really, you know, she had in many ways a very privileged and brilliant life, but she's had some real trauma and had to navigate some very complex things. And I feel at this time, these moments we're living through, hearing that voice of quiet, calm authority, which really comes through and, you know, reading about walking onto the Disney soundstage and, you know, filming Mary Poppins, that's a really inspiring enlivening enriching book at the moment to sort of help us all I think amazing I'm gonna go straight on to Amazon after this <laughs> <Yeah>. chat <laughs> um my current Netflix watch is oh well I've just finished um Tiger King and I'd really encourage you know it's really entertaining and it's a fabulous insight but you know think about the animal welfare I mean nobody everybody's sort of you know dressing up as this guy and it's sort of in a weird sort of way idolizing him but and it's a fascinating insight into that one it's a brilliant documentary but do think about animal cruelty I mean it's it's fascinating that there's been very little discussion around that and also Ozark I've been loving oh my gosh I finished it all have you finished it yet I just finished it last night I mean I literally dropped off the sofa at the end I was like it was not it's amazing that. Oh, Kathy, have you watched it? I'm, I've started it, so I haven't. Okay, no spoilers. It's so well acted, isn't it? It's really well acted. And it's epic. I'm, epic, yeah. Absolutely epic. Scarlett and I have both really just enjoyed normal people um, as well. Haven't started that. That's next on my list. Oh, the acting! It's so simple and it's so pure and it's brilliant. It's can't so, wait. I'll start so that the, this evening. The, the guy, the the lead guy, and um, this is his screen debut as well like he he is insane it's enjoy it it's great oh i can't wait thank you for the tip (laughs) and if i was stranded on a desert island my one item would be could i have my dog oscar or my mum or could i have a person (laughs) oh gosh who do i choose then my mum or the dog i'd have to choose my mum obviously but maybe we could (laughs) smuggle the dog in our yeah. under our jacket or something. So yeah, mother and Oscar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, mental health to me is well, it's it's about being positive. I think it's about talking about it and embracing it. So mental health to me is about embracing mental health in all its facets, but also acknowledging that mental health is linked to physical health and you know exercising and eating well and you know, whether it's watching a really good show on Netflix or reading a good book, it's about all of, it's about the simple things in life, isn't it? It's about, you know, access to food, quality food, access to education. It's, you know, it's it's sort of mental health, sadly, isn't a democratic thing in our world because so much of it is informed by 
circumstance and you know the world around us so mental health mental health maybe is about striving for equality absolutely love that um pineapple on a pizza is not a good idea (laughs) pineapple is a delicious beautiful thing just to be enjoyed in its naked original form Scarlett and I differ on this, so we like to ask. I love it a pineapple on a pizza. Ham and pineapple. No, no. I love a pizza. I love a pineapple, but let's just never the twain should meet. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and finally, in the future, I want to. Well, I just love to carry on working at Curve and love to see the doors open again and carry on meeting our audiences and inspiring our communities and being there for them. That's sort of the immediate future, I guess. Yeah. Nicolai, thank you so, so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Oh, thank you. It's been so inspiring talking to you both. Thank you for the incredible questions and keep up the great work you do. It's really impressive and so inspiring to so many of us. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Industry Minds. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can reach us on our email, which is info at industryminds.co.uk. For all counselling inquiries, please email mary at industryminds.co.uk. You can find us on social media. Our Twitter and Instagram handles are at industrymindsuk. There you can keep up to date with all our latest announcements. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next week.